You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. Well, as Mark said, we're back in our studies of uh, 1 Timothy. And the reading is printed on your sheet with a, a bonus extra. This is why it's a good reason to, to have the, your Bibles with you. So if you look at under where it says sermon, we're actually reading 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. Uh, that little fragment below has snuck in with the wonders of Bible software and publishing software. So that's a bonus extra from the Psalms. Um, not part of my sermon text, although it is only three verses. So if I, if I run out of material to preach on, we might have a mini, mini sermon on the Psalms afterwards. But we are finishing with the words, taken up in glory. Uh, it's a good reason for you to have your Bibles with you and to be following along uh, in the Bible and, and checking that we have these things straight. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse, uh, verses 14 to 16. Paul writes... I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Amen. I think that is uh, out of power, just there to throw the preacher. Great, so 1 Timothy is all about how we are to live together in God's house. Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? Save sinners, save sinners yeah? And he saves us, but he doesn't just save individual sinners. He does save individual sinners, but he doesn't just save individual sinners and then heap us up in a, a, a pile and let us get on with it. He saves sinners and builds us into his house, into a people people for the praise of his name. And 1 Timothy is all about how we are to live in God's house. And so we're going to look at this little passage, three verses under two sections. uh, Verses 14 to 15, the house of God. And then verse 16, the gospel of God. Okay, that's what we're going to look at. Paul's writing how we're to behave in the church, which is the house of God. And then he talks about this mystery, this this revelation of of Christ, which is all about the gospel of God. Okay, so this is, um, in many of Paul's letters, the way way he structures his letters, if you think of Romans or Ephesians, in in the first few chapters, he lays out the great doctrines of the faith. He lays out who God is, what he has done in the gospel, who we are. And then he moves on to the ethical sections. You think of... uh, Ephesians from chapter 4 on, it was, you know, therefore, and then he, he comes in with lots of ethical instructions of how we are to live 
in the light of these great doctrines that he's laid out. Or think of the book of Romans. He starts off laying out these, this great doctrinal foundation. Well, in 1 Timothy, he's been doing it slightly differently. He's been coming in with lots of ethical instructions. And then you get these just doctrinal uh, passages, moments, like trustworthy sayings that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And, and this one, this hymn to Christ, is another one of these doctrinal cores of the letter. And really, we're going to take a little bit of time to look at it because it's so significant in the letter. This is, in many ways, the core of the letter, the pivot on which everything turns. Everything radiates out from this. All the ethical commands he's been given uh, come from what he is saying about the gospel. Because he's been saying lots of ethical commands. If you think back to a couple of weeks ago, it was all about elders um, and deacons. And there's lots of standards he's laying out. Elders must be dignified and, and must not do this. And there's this standard he's been laying out, lots of ethical standards. But the core of it is what God has done in the gospel of Christ. So we're going to look at, first off then, the house of God, verse 14 at 15. Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, speaking of Timothy, this pastor in Ephesus, but I'm writing these things, all that he's said in the previous chapter or two, to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. So Paul thinks he might be delayed, but this is so important that he's writing to Timothy how one ought to behave in the household of God. So uh, we learn God has a house. A household. The word here is house, but much as in English we use these words um, in, in both ways. So we speak of the house of Windsor, speaking of the royal family. So house and household are used uh, interchangeably. So he's speaking of, of the house of God. And we know, don't we, in the, in the Old Covenant that God uh, has established his house the house of God was the temple. There was that physical structure. And we've been thinking of God moving in. When God moved in to the temple, it was filled with his glory cloud. God moved in to his house. And he came to dwell in the midst of his people. That was the temple. God in the midst of his people. And with the coming of Christ... God came to dwell with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. And now with the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ to the right hand of God, his spirit is poured out and he has filled his house, his temple. Remember at Pentecost, the beginning of Acts, as the spirit falls and there is these tongues of fire which come to rest on individual believers, believers, we are, as individuals, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. And God came to dwell amongst his people, his fiery presence, his visible manifestation there of God with his people. And that's what we've been reading in the book of Acts. We see these first chapters, in many ways we are seeing the apostles saying, look, the church is now the temple of the living God. And that earthly structure, that earthly that stone building was then dismantled. It was torn down. God tore it down with the help of the Roman armies in AD 70 because God has established his temple. 
And throughout the world, as the gospel is preached, God is establishing his dwelling place. He was establishing his dwelling place in the midst of the pagan darkness of the ancient world. And in the new covenant, God has thrown open the doors of his house and is welcoming people into his house from the nations, from the kingdom of darkness to come in to the house of God, the household of God, coming into the family of God. So, as we were thinking about uh, earlier, we're the house of God, we're the family of God, brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ with the same heavenly Father. And so we see that is reflected all the way through 1 Timothy. Uh, Timothy is instructed to treat older women as mothers and older men as fathers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Well, why was that? Well, because the church is the house of God, the family of God, bound together by covenant, bound together through Jesus Christ. We share a common inheritance in the world to come. We are God's family. And here Paul talks of this household, uh, this church, which is the assembly, uh, as the church of the living God. Here, the church of the living God. And Paul here is making a distinction between the true and living God, the God who has revealed himself in the scriptures, uh, and idols, the gods of the nations. Remember, they would make those gods. There were temples in the ancient world, these houses filled with, temp with, with idols, statues made of wood covered in gold. Uh, and people would worship these gods which were not really gods. They were not the true and living God. They had eyes but could not see, hands but could not help and could not do anything. And so Paul is saying this because if you remember Ephesus and the background there, it was in the midst of, of pagan idolatry. And if you've, if you've read the book, the account in, in Acts 17, as Paul's preaching the gospel there, in the midst of Ephesus, this great temple to Artemis of the Ephesians with these, these great uh, idols in the temple. And, and the ancient world was littered with these temples and people would worship these goddesses. They would cry out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And there were gods. And Paul went around the ancient world preaching, no, 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 these are not real gods. The true and living God does not live in a temple made by hands. He is the God who made everything. He made heaven and earth. He is the living God. And that message transformed the world, it transformed the ancient world, it transformed Ephesus. He actually, the, the gospel was so powerful and caused such upset that the silversmiths got upset, if you remember from Acts, because they were the ones who made the idols, made all the things in worship, and people were worshipping the true and living God now, so they didn't need to spend all their money on these idols. And so the gospel completely transformed the economy. The economy, and it's an interesting word, the uh, economy literally means uh, it's from the word oikos, household, and nomos, law. The household law. So God sets up a new economy. He's establishing a house. And in his house, we don't worship things which are not the true and living God. And in his house, we don't do what they did in the household of slavery, like in, in Pharaoh's household. In his house, he has his law, which dignifies men and women and protects the weak. And so he sets up his house in the midst of Ephesus, in the midst of our world today, as the gospel is preached, he is establishing his people. 
And so he, he, that's what he's saying. It's the church of the living God. As, the, as God came down and filled that temple with his cloud, with his presence. So he dwells amongst his people. He dwells in us and he's with us. And we cry out to the, the Lord God who's enthroned upon high. And he answers our prayers. He hears us. We're not just talking to the ceiling. We're crying out to the living God. And Paul then, he says this, this church is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. That great uh, temple of Artemis and the Ephesians had 120 of these great pillars. They were marble pillars and some of them were encrusted with jewels. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. So it seems that Paul is just riffing off of, of this, this idea of the, this, this pagan temple is saying, actually, the true temple has come. The true temple has come and the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. And just as these pillars of that great temple of, of Artemis of the Ephesians would hold up the roof, and sometimes you think of the Acropolis, they would have these, these great statues and great pictures on the top of the gods, and the holding that up for everyone to see, actually the church of maybe living stones is holding up and holding out the truth of God. It's holding out the gospel in the middle of that dark society. So, um, speaking of God's church holding out the truth. The church is not the source of the truth. The truth comes by revelation from God. We see that actually in uh, verse 16 when we come on to think of the gospel of God. Christ is the foundation of the church in that sense. So that tends to be how this language of foundation is used. But here, Paul is talking about the church who's been brought into existence by the gospel, then holding out the truth of the gospel. And you may know that this, this verse is, is a Roman um, Catholic apologists like this verse because they, they would argue that the Roman church is the pillar of the truth. And if you want to know the truth of God, you have to come to the, into fellowship with the, the Roman Catholic Church and, and listen to what they say about uh, the, the teaching of the Bible. Um, and you can sort of, you see how they get there if you just take these verses and then don't look at uh, how they work in context. But what Paul is talking about here is how God is establishing these communities across the ancient world to hold out the truth of the gospel, to hold out this good deposit. Later on, he talks of the, the truth which Timothy has to guard as the good deposit. A deposit is something, a treasure which has been given um, by revelation and that Timothy then needs to guard it by preaching it, by making it known. So that was the, the plan, God's plan for his people in Ephesus uh, in a world filled with lies about reality and lies about God and confusion and darkness and ignorance was that this community, these little communities, would hold out the truth about God, the creator God, hold out the truth about the, the way of salvation through Christ. And that is God's plan for us, for us as his people together here. He's brought us together as he living stones. And his plan uh, for, to, to bring the gospel to Gloucester is to use faithful churches, to use the local church. It's extraordinary, isn't it? See, what, how is God going to share the message of the gospel in Gloucester as we come up to Christmas? 
Is he going to order a band of angels to come into Gloucester and, and make it known throughout the place? No, no, this is, we are his plan to make known, to hold up the truth of God in our day, in our generation. That's extraordinary, isn't it? And so don't we need to pray for God's help in these things and for him to work among us? For we live in a generation which we've lost our grip on truth in many ways, haven't we? We, we, we suppress the truth. We say, well, we live in a, a post-truth world or we just think that people who speak about truth, they're just uh, trying to do a disguise power grab or something. And so into our world where we've denied the truth of God and denied the truth of um, ourselves made in his image, we are to hold out in our homes, in our family, and as a church, the truth of God. And it's extraordinary, isn't it? So all the sort of practical details of what we're, we're doing, we've been looking at uh, the appointment of elders and deacons and the kind of nitty-gritty of church life, and some of those things we think, well, that's rather boring. Actually, those things in God's purposes are important because his church and how we are built together as his people is this is this temple to hold out the gospel to, to the world. Yeah, so we pray for, our, pray for God's help in these things. So that's the, the house of God, as he's speaking of there. And then we move on in verse 16. Um, we talks, uh, Paul then moves on to talk about the gospel of God. And this rather, verse 16, is a rather enigmatic verse, so we need to spend a little bit of time unpacking it. So verse 16, um, he's been talking about the church. He, he then says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now what is he saying there? He's saying godliness is all a bit mysterious. What is he saying? Well, Paul actually uses this word, as you may know, mystery, many times in his writings. And he uses it to mean God's plan which was hidden, but has now been revealed. He uses it in quite a specific sense. You can see this, actually, at the end of the book of Romans, he uses it like this. He speaks of the preaching of Jesus Christ. He speaks of that as the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed. So you might imagine if I had a great box in front of us here marked uh, the mystery. It's the mystery box. And you come in and you think, well, I wonder what's in the box. It's a mystery. It's secret. Don't know what's in the box. But then I open the box and you see it's filled with gold and treasure. The mystery is now open. Okay, so, so Paul uses it in that sense. Something which was hidden, it's revealed in the prophetic writings, but no one could have sort of written out how the life of Christ was going to come about. It was foreshadowed, but it's now open. It's now an, the gospel is now an open secret. The treasure of Jesus Christ is now to be lifted up and made known in all the nations. That God has come in the flesh and all that he talks about uh, later on. Uh, about the, the Christ's coming, his rising again, his ascension. This is the, the mystery of the gospel. It's now been made known. It is our task to make known Christ among the nations. That is what he's talking about, mystery. But then he talks about the mystery of um, godliness. And when he's talking about godliness, 
he's talking about what the Christian faith, our life, our piety, uh, how uh, what we believe and how we then respond in our lives. All of that is based on and is a response to the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. So there's a similar um, phrase at the beginning of uh, one. Um, the beginning of Paul's letter to Titus it says this, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, truth about Jesus, which accords with godliness. Same word, that's Titus 1 verse 2. So the truth of the gospel accords with godliness. This mystery which has been revealed accords with holiness. Our response to that is holiness in, of life. And actually at the end of, of the book of Romans, Paul then talks about the obedience of faith among all the, the nations, all the Gentiles. People come to Christ and they are transformed by God, by the gospel, by God's spirit. So it's an, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting phrase there, the great, we can, indeed we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And it may be that actually what, what Paul is doing is, is a, a, a counterclaim to what was going on in Ephesus or had been going on in Ephesus. Do you remember uh, the, the chant which went up in that riot in Ephesus? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And it might have been that that was a saying that people would just say in, in Ephesus. I don't know if you've been walking in, in Austria uh, you, you might come across people and they say, call Scott, call Scott. They can give greetings in the name of God. But if you've been walking in Ephesus, they may well have said, great, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is that. It might have been a common slogan or common saying. And so Paul is sort of doing a bit of a subversive counterclaim here. No, great is Christ. Great is the mystery of godliness. This is actually the message which is going to transform the world. It's that kind of, that sort of thing might well be going on there. So then we move on to this uh, fragment of a, a hymn, maybe Paul wrote or maybe someone else wrote and he adopted. Um, and it's all about Christ. Uh, he was manifested in the flesh. It's all about Jesus Christ. And in the commentaries, people are, are, aren't really sure quite how to split this up. We've got six lines and there's discussion about is this two lines of three or three lines of two? And it's, it's interesting to puzzle over. Um, it's been noted that if, if it's three lines of two, each two lines, so the first line of two, there's a, uh, goes back from heaven to earth. And heaven, so, so it manifests in, the, sorry, manifests in the flesh, that's about the earth, vindicated by the spirit, that's heaven, seen by angels, that's heaven, proclaimed among the nations, that's the earth, believed in in the world, taken up into glory. So it's been noted that it sort of swings backwards and forwards between heaven and earth if it's, um, if it's three groups of two. But then you have uh, proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world, which those, those seem to be a pair there. So it's, it's difficult to know exactly how to, to, to sort of sort this out. Um, but we're just going to look through each line. So he, the eternal son of God, was manifested in the flesh. This speaks of the incarnation of the Son of God. The eternal word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. There's never a time when the Son of God did not exist, but in history, the eternal Son of God became man, manifested in the flesh. 
And actually, this is really important in, in the book of Ephesus and important in our day uh, because the incarnation of the Son of God reaffirms God's, the goodness of God's creation. And we see as we come on next week, that's a very important thing to reaffirm in Ephesus, important to reaffirm in our own day. Um, it means our ordinary lives are significant. It's manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. This likely speaks of the resurrection of Christ. Uh, Paul, in the beginning of the book of Romans, says how Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So Jesus was crucified as a, a criminal covered with shame, rejected by man, but vindicated by God, raised up, declared to be king of kings, uh, declared to be um, the one he claimed to be. And then seen by angels at the resurrection. Um, and all, Well, different points in Christ's ministry, he was seen by angels. We see that at the resurrection, there are angels. And then at the ascension, there are angels. And so this points to the fact that Christ's victory is actually cosmic. Jesus is Lord over every power in heaven and upon earth. Jesus is Lord of all creation, Lord of every realm, whether visible or invisible. He does not take his place among the pantheon of Roman gods, but he is far above that, far above all rule and authority, far above uh, the emperor in Rome, far above presidents or prime ministers on the earth today. I hear a chorus of hallelujahs breaking out. So, um, and that was important in, in Ephesus, where people, many people lived in the grip of these really dark demonic powers and needed to know that Christ was risen, that he was seen by angels, that his victory is total. But then there he is. He is proclaimed among the nations in the world. This is Paul's great passion, his great desire. So he says, men everywhere pray. He wants to see the gospel going out through the nations. And Christ was proclaimed through the nations. The message of Christ is preached through the nations. Um, and then wonderfully believed on in the world. Do you like that? Christ and the message of Christ is not only preached, but is believed, is received. And it's always a, it's a great astonishment for a, a preacher or if you've, been involved in evangelism, making the gospel known, that actually sometimes people believe the gospel. We tend to think, oh, well, I don't want to share the gospel. I don't want to be involved in that because, after all, no one's going to believe, are they? No one believes anymore in the nations. Well, no, Christ is proclaimed and he is believed in the nations. Sometimes we have the spirit of Elijah, don't we? But Paul says, actually, you know, Elijah, when he's saying, oh, no, 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 I'm the only one left and God's not at work. Uh, but actually, we're called to have that, the spirit of uh, boldness, the spirit of Christ with us. He's uh, believed in the nations. And then taken up in glory. And this is the one we sometimes stumble over a little bit because we think, well, haven't we already been thinking of the ascension of Christ? And, and here he's taken up in glory. How does that fit in? But again, speaking of, of the, the heavenly realms, do you see the lordship of Christ is comprehensive. He's Lord of all. So this is the truth, that mystery which is now open, this open secret, which accords with godliness. This saving plan of God now revealed to the nations 
which is the foundation of our own holiness, of our godliness. And that is what Paul is saying. So he starts off saying, look, I'm writing to you so you ought to know how to behave in the household of God, how we are to live in the household of God, uh, uh, the house of God. And then he moves on to the, the gospel of God. And so all those uh, ethical commands that we have in 1 Timothy, all the response to the gospel, it's all rooted in what God has done in Christ and on what God is doing in Christ and what God will do in Christ. So how do we, how do we respond to this? That's the end of our text for today. How do we respond? Well, the first thing I think is just doxology. Great is the mystery of godliness. Great is Christ. Uh, the culture will say great are many things. Back then, it was great as Artemis of the Ephesians, and now we, we ascribe to praise to all sorts of things. But in the church, we cry glory. We praise Christ and praise him. Great is Christ. Um, so doxology, doxology should be the response. And really, this, this um, little fragment of a, a hymn is a hymn of praise to Christ. And we get to join in that praise to Christ. And so as we approach Christmas, as we look towards that, what do we want to do as a church? Well, we want to praise him ourselves. We want to lift high Christ in our own lives and in our families and to rejoice in him. But then, um, that's doxology, but then I think we just need to see that the call to practical holiness that we've seen in 1 Timothy is a response to what God has done in the gospel in history. It's all a response to that. This is at the core of it. God has sent his son into the world, manifested in the flesh, died on the cross for our sins, and seen by angels, received in glory. Therefore, an elder must be above reproach. Therefore, men lift up holy hands in prayer. Therefore, women be adorned with good works. Therefore, there's this distinction between men and women. Therefore, therefore, therefore. So all the ethical commands that we have in 1 Timothy or in Ephesians, all of that is rooted in this doctrinal foundation so jesus christ is, is lord of all you have this cosmic gospel he's just he's risen he's ascended he's lord of all and therefore our homes and our families should reflect that our marriages should reflect that um, our, our homes and our families and our churches is a, is a microcosm of what god has in fact and is doing in the cosmos and you think this, so this works out at a very, just a very practical level, as, as perhaps as you, you perhaps gather and give thanks for food on the table at, at home. You, you bow your head and say, Heavenly Father, thanks for the food. Now, that seems like a very, very simple thing. But even in something as simple as that, that prayer, you're reflecting a reality which, you know, how can we pray to God as Father? Well, because Christ is ascended on high and uh, he's there and we give thanks to him because we can, we have, uh, open access to the throne room of God. And so the very simple things we do in our homes and our families uh, as we love and serve one another are reflections of this great uh, reordering of the world that God is doing in the gospel. For the world is under new management. Those old powers have fallen and Christ is on the throne. And so godliness is not just a list of do's and don'ts. Um, and our, our kids particularly need to know this as they grow up, that uh, the, the commandments of God don't just come sort of detached. Uh, but actually, all of this is a display of the, the glory of God and flows out of the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. And so our prayer really is that God would build us up in that gospel, would edify and, and build us up. And then, so we have, uh, pray, we have doxology, praise, we have ethics, but then we just need to remember what, the, what Paul is saying with this, this function of, of a temple. We are this temple uh, of, uh, built by God, and this gospel, his purpose is that the gospel then goes out from us in modern Britain. And that is uh, where it is to, to head. And so this gives us, we have great confidence really uh, here. Uh, think of Ephesus. There would have been scattered communities of Christians. They would have felt very, very weak in the shadow of the great temple of Artemis of the Ephesians. But what does it look like now? Where is the temple of Artemis of the Ephesians now? Well, it lies in ruins, doesn't it? It is not there. You can go and see the ruins and poke about them. Where is the church of Jesus Christ, the temple of the living God? Well, that is all around the world. Everywhere in the world you will find believers gathered together meeting. And so uh, we are not to be um, intimidated by the culture around us, but to hold on to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, which accords with godliness. Well, as I close, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We praise you that Christ is the King of kings, the, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. We give him honour and praise and glory. And Father, we pray that you, by your grace, would help us to work out this gospel in our own lives with great joy, to work out this salvation with fear and trembling, uh, knowing that you're with us, knowing the great hope that we have in the gospel, this great hope that heaven and earth will be reunited, and that there's this great future to which you are taking the whole of the creation order. Father, we praise you for your purpose to renew all things and to restore all things, and we praise you that that process has begun in our lives and in the church. We give you great thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we sing of that. You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres, that's P-R-E-S dot co dot